The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Pray with me. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my blessed Savior? Would you make this book live to me? Father, it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We come to what I think may be our last week. May well be our last week in this particular section. We read Ephesians chapter 3. I'll read from verse 7 down through verse 13. David indicated this is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Amen. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. All God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So I can't help as feel as though perhaps I need to really do some work in setting the stage this morning before we come and look at what I think really is the the point that comes out of these last three verses here, verses 11, 12, and 13 in Ephesians chapter 3. And the reason I find that necessary is because I am concerned that perhaps some of us may miss the absolute tsunami. The, the main point, I believe, to everything that the Apostle Paul has been laying out for us here in this letter. That being found right there in verse 12, that in Christ... That is, through our faith in him, we have boldness and confident access to God. I make that statement, and many of you probably sitting in this room this morning say, yes, yes, we've already been over that. We've already talked about the reality that in Christ, we have unfettered access to God. That not only has the wall of division between Jew and Gentile come down, but that the veil has been torn. That we have access before God, not just someday out there in the distance, either when we leave this earth 
and head to heaven to be with him or when Christ Jesus returns and we reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. I, I recognize that for many of you, you hear me tell you about access to God through Christ and you say, yes, that's nothing new to us. And again, you wouldn't be wrong. We've already covered Ephesians chapter two and it was in that chapter that we found these words, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And skipping down to verse 17, and he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Apostle Paul is repeating this point in different language, in different terms, but he's driving us back to the same place, access through Christ to the Father. Now, I've come to learn something about the Apostle Paul. When he repeats something, it's because it's critical for the Christian to know. And it's either difficult for us to grasp or it's easy for us to miss altogether. It seems to me that the Apostle Paul has set up this entire section. You remember, this is a, this is a digression. He began to pray. He reminded them that he was writing these Ephesian saints from prison. He had concern that they would lose heart. So he goes into this digression. He ends it in verse 13. So because of all this, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. But it seems to me that the main point of that entire digression was to bring us here, was to remind these saints in Ephesus that through God's work, through the gracious gift that he's given to Paul, they have access to God in Christ. Now for most of us, we hear that access to God and we know it's a good thing. Surely access to God is better than alienation. Surely being near to God is better, better than being far off. Surely being called a son of God is better than being called hopeless and without God in the world. But if we're honest, that thought doesn't really consume much of our time in worship. We, we don't rejoice all that much. Again, we know it's good, but it, it doesn't drive us to joy. It, it doesn't spur us to endurance. It doesn't lead our worship. The thought that we have access to God. And so it seems to me that that's perhaps why as we come to the last half of Ephesians chapter three, we find the apostle Paul concluding his prayer or going forward, I should say, with his prayer. And it's there that he prays that we would be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. He says, this is going to be a difficult thing for you to really grasp. It's wider and taller and deeper and higher than anything the ordinary mind can comprehend. And so I'm praying to God that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart and he would bring you to some understanding of, again, I say this tsunami this atomic bomb of hope that is dropped into your life when you come to recognize that through Christ Jesus, I have access to God. I submit to you this morning that this must be the ultimate hope of the Christian life. The true reason why salvation is even worth having. The reason why we care anything about being forgiven and cleansed of our sin. The reason why God has set the Apostle Paul apart to take this mystery and deliver it to the world. It is for this end right here that we could have bold and confident access to God. 
Beloved, this is what was lost in the garden. You go back to the Garden of Eden and you consider what Adam and Eve enjoyed in that place. Does your heart not swoon within you when you consider this man and this woman there in that perfect place walking with God in the cool of the evening? Do you not feel yourself like Moses saying, God, just show me your glory. Let me look upon your face. That's what was lost. Is they were cast out from the garden. Is they were removed from the immediate presence of God. Was there anything else that was lost there? Oh, yes. Death and deformity and decay all came rushing in. Fruitlessness, frustrating labor, pain and suffering, fear and distrust, guilt and shame, an overall lack of peace and joy. All of those things became a reality in that moment. But what did they most miss? What was the greatest loss? It was bold and confident access to God. And if we allow any of those other things, as real as they are, if we allow any of those other things to become the focus, if we allow anything other than reconciliation with God to become the hope of the Christian life, you may well arrive at the end of this thing. You may well find yourself pursuing all of those things only to get to the end and find they cannot last and they will never satisfy you. You will find that you had spent the whole of your life chasing after a mist and a vapor and a thing that runs through your fingers and you are empty and you are lost. This is why we find men so often in this lifetime perverting God's good gifts. You, you know my propensity towards gluttony. I've not made that any secret. And I try to continue to bring that up because the first few times that I talk about it, everybody kind of laughs. But it is grotesque. It is a picture of a man taking God's good gifts. Food is good. It is a gift to be enjoyed to the glory of God, but it will never satisfy and it can never become the aim. And so what we do is we seek to enjoy these gifts in separation from God, or we look to these gifts to provide us something they were never meant to provide us, and it doesn't do the thing we called it to do. It doesn't meet our expectations. So what do we do? We double down and we go for more. The same thing can be said of every other one of his gifts. Why is there all manner of perversion with regards to sexual intimacy? Because it's never meant to satisfy and fill the hole within your heart. God has placed eternity within the hearts of men. And when we try to fit that hole with the things that he has given us, we will always end up in some manner of sin and perversion. We were never meant to find satisfaction in God's gifts. We were, we were built for him. I remind you of what King David said in Psalm 16, verse 2. He says, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have nothing good. Now, here's the way that the fallen mind likes to hear that. You are my Lord. And except for when I come to you, I don't receive anything good. You're the holder of all the good gifts. 
So I'm not going to go to the world to get the good gifts. I'm going to come to you to get the good gifts. That's not what he's saying. The NASB has it translated a little bit better, I think. I have nothing good besides you. You are the only good. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper happiness and is the only happiness with which our souls can ever be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children or the company of any earthly friends. These are shadows, but God is the substance. These are scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are streams, but God is the fountain. These are drops, but God is the ocean. You have heard me say in your presence before to my children, and I say it again now. I love my wife and I love my three girls more than I ever thought I could love anything. I would die for them. I, I, I would give everything that I have to lead them to everlasting joy. But I look to them in your presence and say, I love God more. I love him more. You can't satisfy me. You weren't built to satisfy me. We were built for him. That's why in that same psalm, King David goes on to say in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Again, hear me. It isn't you come to God to get the stuff. You come to God to get God. You learn then to enjoy all of these good gifts in his presence. Surely you know something of this through marriage. What are the vows that you say from a platform like this? For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in death. Strip it all. As long as I have you, I've got everything. That's meant to be the story of our love for God, and our, our delight in God. And I need to draw your attention as I did. I touched on this Wednesday night. There's a very real danger in the here and now when we allow the gifts of God to become the aim. If we ever allow ourselves to look to the gifts that God offers rather than God himself is, is the aim and the hope of the Christian life. And beloved, this happens so subtly. This happens so subtly. And it can be so very tempting for teachers and preachers to point towards. You want to know why? Because it does not take being born again. It does not take a regenerate heart to want the things of God. Do you think a man has to be born again to not want to go to hell? Do you think a man has to be born again to want peace in this life? Or joy? Or any other of the good gifts that God promises? So when we hold out God as the ultimate hope and treasure and reward of the Christian life, and men don't want that, we're so tempted then to run in and say, yeah, but what about all this? Don't you want this? But it doesn't take a new heart to want that. A damned man goes to hell wanting that. But he doesn't want God. 
Men get all bound up with the question that I will stand at the pearly gates and God will ask, why should I let you in? And we start to then think about works versus faith and Christ's righteousness compared to any level of self-righteousness. But perhaps the question I'll ask is, why do you want to come in? What are you looking for here? Do you long for heaven because I am here? Do you long to be here because I am your treasure and your reward and your hope? So it happens very subtly. Men, men preach it very subtly without even knowing it in our own heart. I promise you that there have been times that I've stood in this pulpit and I've held out the gifts of God rather than God himself as your ultimate hope. I, I, I'm not casting stones. I promise you I've failed in this area. I know that I've failed in my preaching because I see that I've prayed. I've, failed in my prayers and in, in my own hope and my own desires but the problem is when we allow the things of God to replace God as our ultimate hope what you will find is that you are much more susceptible to chase after those things according to the world's ways God just becomes a means to another ends and again I say the same kind of ends that the rest of the world is running after you look to the world and say you want the same things I want and you get them through cheating and lying and stealing and selfishness I'm chasing the same things. I just think God's a better means to those ends. I think he can give me the same things that you want. And then here's what happens. Whenever the world presents to us some way to attain those things that are our gods, those idols, those gifts, when the world holds them out before us and says, you can have them in a way that does not include dying to yourself, walking through pain, and submitting to Jesus as Lord, we jump. I want you to think with me about the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you're never going to face these same temptations that Jesus does. This isn't where's Waldo and where am I in this story. This is Christ Jesus' victor. This is him winning where Adam fails. But there is something about the nature of temptation and about the way in which man is meant to relate to God that can be seen there. So in Matthew 4, we read, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I want you to think about it. We'll go there in a minute, but I want you to think about what Jesus said next. He, he doesn't say to him, Satan, those things have already been promised to me. That, that's the whole purpose that I have come to earth is to recapture that which which Adam forfeited to you. And my father has already promised all those things to me. And so why would I bow to you to get something that the father's already promised? Now that's an absolutely true statement. That is in no way a lie. But that's not the way that he responds to the enemy. That's the way our mind goes. Again, thinking back to the Garden of Eden, I want you to think about the encounter there. As the serpent came and says to the woman, you will... You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. I hear that and immediately I think, Adam and Eve, aren't you foolish? You're already like God. Why would you bow to Satan to get that which God has already promised? Again, absolutely a true statement. Absolutely a true thought. But I want you to look at what happened with them. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Essentially, she looks at the tree and says, I think it can deliver. I think it can give me the thing that I desire. Yes, at great unforeseen cost, but she put her eyes on the thing. So when Eve looked and saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Don't you see that the serpent's ultimate lie wasn't about the nature of the fruit. The, Satan, the serpent's ultimate lie wasn't even about the cost and about the curse that would come upon them if they reached out their hand and took that fruit. The craftiness of the serpent was in causing Adam and Eve to take their eyes off God and put it on the thing. And then it's easy to impugn the motives of God to convince you that he's selfish or that he's stingy, that he either hasn't or cannot deliver on the thing that he's promised. The first couple, their response should have been something like, Satan, there is nothing that you can offer me. More than this, there is nothing that God has promised me that I want more than God. But they took their eyes off of him and they put it upon the gifts. They put it upon the thing. Instead of looking Satan in the eye and saying, be gone. For his steadfast love is better than life. So if you go back to the wilderness and think about what Jesus' response was. Did he get into a debate with Satan about the nature of authority? Was there any kind of a back and forth with him about whether he had the right to promise to him the kingdoms of this world or, or whether Satan could make good on his promises? Did he talk to him about the fact that the only real path to glory has to go through suffering? No, he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. He says, Satan, you are so very wrong. Yes, I have come to recapture that which has been lost. Yes, I've come and all power and all authority is going to be given to me, but I've come to do so out of love for my father. I long to do this for his glory. Satan, you may well be able to give me the kingdoms of the earth, but you can't give me God. So be gone. Do you see it? I want that for us more than anything. I see it in glimpses in, in my own life and I see it in glimpses in you. But I see how hard the pull of the stuff is and it's good stuff. I'm talking about family. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about inner peace. I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about all manner of good things, not overtly sinful things and every single one of them threatening to become an idol. How do I know they become an idol? Because the thought of losing them drives me to madness. It drives me to distrust God. It drives me to flee from his presence. It tamps down my worship and adoration of him. I find myself joyless and filled with fear and anxiety. 
I want us to be a people who doesn't just delight in God, but if I can use a phrase I hadn't used in a while, who charges hard after him. That we would view everything that we do in this place as we are charging after God. We're not sitting back and waiting. We're devoting the whole of our life and everything that we have. Just take more of this that I can have more of him. Sound familiar? We want him. Show us yourself. Show us your glory. So that we could say with genuine confidence, with, 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 without ever having to, to flinch or to, to hold something back, that we can say with Psalm 73, Lord, who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my reward, my treasure forever. If I can give you one more quote, I know this is more of an introduction than you probably bargained for, but the, the text preaches itself when we get this. Do you understand? Your heart will leap for joy when you get this. When Paul comes before you and says, bold and confident access is yours. But A.W. Tozer in the pursuit of God, he says, the man who has God as his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will also be tempered that they will never be necessary for his happiness. Do you hear that? That those good gifts would never be necessary for your happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For in having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it Purely, legitimately, and forever. The one thing that could never be lost is all in all. This is my desire for us. This is why when we come into this place, every, everything that we do, every thought that we have, every moment that we spend, every prayer that we offer, every text that we read, every song that we sing, it is all meant to hold up God as the all-sufficient one before you. Amen. To show you who God in Christ is. Recognizing that for many, they'll say, that's all good, but what can he give me? That's all fine and good, but tell me about his gifts. So we hold him up before you and we pray that he would send his spirit to cause you to desire him. So then we come to verse 11. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is this? It's everything that's come before. God's gracious calling of the Apostle Paul. Me, though I'm the, the least of the saints, the chief of the sinners, not worthy to be called an apostle. God calling him not only to be a sheep, but to be a shepherd of his sheep. God's entrusting of him this wonderful mystery. I'm going to reveal to you things that you would then reveal to others so that he speaks and as he writes and as he, he preaches, we come to understand the enlightening of the eyes of our heart as we're able to see this mystery for ourselves. 
This bringing of wayward sinners in as saints into the family of God. His work by His Spirit of cobbling us together like living stones and chipping away at what doesn't belong as He, he builds this magnificent edifice. Everything that we talked about last week about how God's purpose in the church isn't just for our blessing, but it's to make His glory known specifically to the praise of the glory of His wisdom. His manifold wisdom, His multicolored wisdom, His unsearchable wisdom, unfathomable wisdom. That one struck me this week as I thought about what that means. That's a weird word, unfathomable. You know what a fathom is? It's a depth at sea. You keep going down and down and down. And we don't get to the bottom, Captain. The beauty and magnificence and unending nature of God's wisdom. That he's proclaiming it not just to the watching world around us, but that we stand here today as a people. A united people, one new man in Christ Jesus, that just our very existence as the church, it says something about God to the heavens. These rulers and authorities in heavenly places, they look on and they say, what a wise God. Who could ever write a story like that? He says that all of this, everything that's come before, was according to the eternal purpose, which he has recognized, or excuse me, realized, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, again, this is a recurring theme for us. Must be important and must be easy to miss. How often has the Apostle Paul made clear to us that God has a purpose? Surely you understand that by now. God has a plan. Now, don't take for granted that the rest of the world that calls themselves Christian understands this. That God has a purpose and that God has a plan that according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that this plan is for all things. Ta panta. All things. That there's no meaningless moments. There's no spare parts. There's not a millisecond of this life that doesn't matter and that isn't being used by God in accordance with His purposes. Go back to Romans 8, 28, another text. I'm, I'm having flashbacks to three years ago this week, if you can't tell. I'm thinking back over times when I was calling us to charge hard after God. And when I was looking you in the eye and I was constantly reminding you that he works all things for the good of his children. And we see the same word used in Romans 8, 28, this, this idea that he has, a, he has a purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we can't take that out of context. We've got to remember where the end of chapter 8 takes us. Romans chapter 8. We've got to remember where this thing is leading. And where is it? To the children of God recognizing that there is nothing. Not life, not death, not life, not death, not height, not depth, not rulers, not authorities, not anything in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That that's his purpose. That's the good that he's working towards. That's the good that can't be thwarted because he says that this is his purpose and this is his plan. But he doesn't just say this is his purpose and this is his plan. It says that this is his purpose and that it's eternal. And we've talked a lot about what this means. We've looked backwards into eternity as much as we're able, right? As Paul pierces the veil for us, as he sweeps us up into heavenly places and he shows us places we really at times feel like we ought not be allowed to look. Do I belong here? 
It's a, it's a bit like John 17 as we hear Christ praying to the Father and we wonder, man, does he know we're still here and is it appropriate for us to hear these words? So the Apostle Paul has taken us and he's given us a view of eternity past that almost, it feels off limits. Should we be allowed to know these things that the triune God before the foundation of the world, he had made this decree that the Father had this plan and that the Son would go and, and accomplish this plan, that the Holy Spirit would come and, and apply it. So we spent a lot of time looking backwards into eternity past and coming to the realization that there was a plan, that there was a purpose, and that now in real time, God is administering this purpose. He's carrying out his plan and the administration of all things. But let us not miss what this means for eternity future. Let us not miss that what he's saying here is this wasn't just God's plan in eternity past. This will always be God's plan. In all times and in all ages, this preaching of the gospel, this sitting of his spirit to enlighten the eyes of men's heart, to bring them into the church, his displaying of his magnificent wisdom to all the world in the church. This is the centerpiece of God's plan. It always has been and it always will be in all ages at every time, every generation. We have this idea, I'm afraid, that we live in some super unique era. And I think that's normal. I think that every generation has felt like this, that, that we live in this just, just completely unforeseen era, this, this age that the rest of the world would have never imagined in years gone by. And so because of that, we can be tempted to think, yeah, well, so, so true religion and, and, and the things of God, that really was the answer for all things for those saints back there. And we look at the first century church and we see how everything had been stripped of them and of course, they gave their life to Christ Jesus. And of course, they came to the Holy Scriptures and the apostles' teaching. And they found there the answer for everything they needed to know. But we live in a different time. We're, we're more advanced than this. We've advanced in the sciences and in all these other disciplines. And we've got, we've got medicines and we've got other ways of thinking and, and all kinds of philosophy that can come in and, and help us to make sense of life. They didn't have all that. All they had was God. Bless their hearts. All they had was God and all they had was the scriptures. And aren't we thankful that we live in the internet era? Aren't we thankful that we live in a time when all the wisdom of the world is at our fingertips? And so that was good. That was enough for them. But is it really enough for us in this age and in, in this time? Paul's reminding us here that it is. That the truth we read, the words we read in these ancient scriptures... They were written by the God of the universe, breathed out by the God of the universe, from the very mouth of the God of the universe, who had a plan from eternity past that reaches into eternity future. That this was his plan and his purpose and his will for every single age from here to there. That there's never a time when we outgrow the gospel. There's never a time when the word of God is not sufficient for all things that he would have us to know for life and for holiness. This is God's plan. This is his plan and his purpose. Yes, even in this advanced technological age. And yes, even in your life. See, it's easy to sit here and say, it's enough. It's enough. God knew the internet was coming. By his providence, he's brought us to a place where there's wars breaking out all over the world. By his loving hand, we find ourselves sitting here with a coronavirus or whatever else the next thing coming our direction is. 
It's easy to sit here and go, he's enough. It's enough. His word is his plan. This is the purpose. This is the way he's going to carry it out. And then it hits you in the mouth in your life and you go, well, theoretically. It's enough for the church, but is it enough for me? It's enough for the saints at large, but it's enough for me. Surely there's something unique about my scenario. Surely I have some excuse or some reason or some extraordinary circumstance that has put me outside the bounds of the sufficiency of what God's doing. I've done it. I go out on a limb to say you've done it. But this is his plan. This is his purpose. And not only is this his plan or this is his purpose, but it will come to pass. It's not it's his plan and what if his plan doesn't work? You know, I'll talk to people about the nature of saving faith, about true repentance and saving faith. And very often I use the analogy of a chair because it's easy. And I'll talk about putting all our weight in the chair. I lift my feet off the ground as I sit in a chair and I look to people and I'll say, here's the reality. Right now, if this chair fails, I'm in trouble. And then oftentimes those who have saving faith, they will find themselves living lives where they look up and they say, look, if Christ proves to be a lie, I'm in deep trouble because I've got nothing else. But as I think about this, I wonder, is that even a fair analogy? Because we place our hope in the fact that his plan will come to pass. It will succeed. What does he say here? Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized. He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The root word for realized is to create or to do or to accomplish. It's the carrying out of the plan. The exact same word was used back in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 where it talks about the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, there's the word, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's much like administration or management that we've talked about in previous texts. It's the doing of the thing that God desires. And beloved, you've got to hear me tell you this. God doesn't try to do anything. God doesn't have to effort to do anything. God just does. All things according to the counsel of his will. This is the recurring story of the whole of scripture and it's meant to bring his children great comfort. If you trust him as a good father and you trust his plan and his wisdom, it's meant to bring us great comfort. Even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of a world seeming to fall into anarchy, we need to know that we have a God who doesn't effort, who doesn't try, who doesn't aim and yet not accomplish. Isaiah 46, 10. I love that. How many times have I got to tell you? Have you read it yet? Have you taken me up on it? Have you gone to that section there from Isaiah 40 through 46 where he's just talking trash to idols? Humanity doesn't do sarcasm very well. God does. As he mocks these idols and he mocks those who would go after idols. But it's there that we find him saying, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. 
I'm going to accomplish the thing that I've desired. In fact, in Christ Jesus, I've already carried it out. This plan before the foundation of the world. Accomplished before you were born. How much comfort should that give us? How much assurance should that bring? And how has he carried it out? He tells us that it is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look back to chapter 1. You find in chapter 1 verse 3 that we are blessed and chosen in Christ. Verse 5, we are adopted through Christ. Verse 7, we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance in Christ. Verse 13, sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7, we're going to realize God's good gifts for all eternity in Christ. Verse 10, created for good works in Christ. Verse 15, made into one new man in Christ. Verse 20, uh, 21 and 22, built into one people one building, a temple for the Holy Spirit in Christ. God has an eternal purpose that he's administering and carrying out. He has accomplished where? In Christ. So many men have this view of Christ Jesus as if he was just one more messenger. Just the greatest of prophets. I'm not talking about Muslims. I'm talking about Christians that treat Christ Jesus as though all he was was a messenger. He came to make some offer. He came to extend some love letter from God to man. Forgetting Christ Jesus came to accomplish. To carry out that which the Father had purposed. And so it should be in no way a surprise then. If that's the role that Christ Jesus plays, it should be no surprise then when we come to verse 12 and read, In whom? Pointing back to Christ. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The only way to the Father. He says it explicitly. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only one way of access. This, this word access, it means way of approach. But it's, but it's more than just a, a door. He's waiting for us to walk through. It also means an introduction. What does he say in 1 Peter 3.18 that he came? What did I read to you earlier? Is your assurance of pardon. What did I read? He came to bring you to God. The whole of what we've been reading in Ephesians makes clear. It's a one-way rescue mission. The Son of God coming to ransom people and carry us into the presence of God. Seated with Him in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. That's what He's come to do. And how do we attain such a thing? What's the instrument through which we receive it? He says it's faith. It's the only time Paul says this. This is the whole of his ministry is driving this truth home. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. More than that, this access to God. Through our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Now there's other ways to get other things. You realize this. Again, that's the craftiness of the serpent. He will lead you to some level of superficial faith. Just, just the tip of a cap to Christ. Some intellectual assent to the realities of Christ. He will then lead you to the things. You'll find your life filled with the things of God. How many people have you, have you heard tell you, look, I know that God is good. You do. I know that God loves me. You do. 
I know that I'm his. You do. Tell me. Just the other day, I was just about out of money. And a check came in the mail for just the right amount. My loved one was sick. And I prayed and he healed them. God heals all kinds of people. He gives money to all kinds of people. You can, again I say, you can have the whole world and miss God. You can receive all the gifts of the world and completely miss God. You don't need faith in Jesus Christ. Salvific faith in Jesus Christ to receive these good gifts. And so we can't take these good gifts as the evidence that we're right with God. It's the proof that we have peace and access to God. He's saying you can't have real peace. You can't have access to God except by faith in Christ Jesus. And I submit to you this morning, you wouldn't want access to God except for faith in Christ Jesus. It would be to your horror. It would be to your damnation. Because apart from Christ Jesus, you're an enemy of God. You would come rushing into his presence only to find that he hates your guts. That makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? That his wrath is upon you. That he's a consuming fire. Isaiah 33, 14. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who's the answer? Christ Jesus alone. He goes on to describe. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Who despises the gain of the oppressions. Who shakes his hand lest he hold a bribe. Who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. Who shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Who's the one that walks in this perfect righteousness? Who's the one that can't look upon anything that is unholy or unclean or vile or evil? Who's the one that can't stand sin? It's Christ Jesus. Only he can come into the presence of God and live. Let me circle back. God loves the world. I don't want emails this way. I don't, I don't want you to, to, to get caught up in that and not hear what I'm saying here. There is a way in which God loves the world and provides for the world and gives the offer of salvation to the world. But scripture also says that we are children of wrath apart from Christ Jesus. Sons of disobedience destined for his punishment. So he's, he's saying here, who? Who? Isn't that the song of the whole Old Testament? What was the priesthood about? What was the temple about? What was the curtain about? What was the sacrifices about? It's about the cry of Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who will go for us? Who is fit to stand in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God? Angels cover their face. Isaiah falls down like a dead man. The apostle John Again, falls down like a dead man. So who can go? Who can stand in his presence? Who is fit for this holy, holy, holy God? The answer, only Christ. And yet God has promised. It's a gift of grace and mercy and love. God has promised that those who are joined through faith in him, that his life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. We're united to him in his resurrection in a very real way so that there's no more condemnation for our treason. 
There's no more stain of sin, no more, no more guilt clinging to our souls. And what's more than this, that through our faith in him, like Father Abraham, empty hands of faith. Why faith? Faith is the anti-work. It's empty hands. It's a receiving. I love the passage that we read together on Wednesday night as we worked through Psalm 81. Um, Psalm 81.10, it says that God calls out to his people and he says, open your mouths wide and I will fill them. It's like a baby bird. You open your mouth wide and you lift up your hands high and you say, may I receive it. I trust that you are able. I trust that you desire. That's the picture of receiving faith. And he says it's this kind of faith that's credited to us as righteousness. It's not faith substituted. It's not, it's not that faith is the same as righteousness. It's through this faith, our union to Christ Jesus, that his righteousness is credited to us. So that the God of the universe doesn't look at us and see anymore children of wrath. Those who are fitted for hell. He sees nothing but his son's perfection. Clothed in his righteousness. He looks to you and no longer sees sons of disobedience. He sees his beloved son whom he loves. How much does a father delight in his son? How much does he rejoice in doing good for his son? That's the kind of access we have. And I, take, I ask you to take note of the fact that he says you have this access. It's been done. It's been accomplished. Already seated with him in heavenly places. The question is, do you believe this? This is the heart of the gospel, you know. Do you believe this? Do you believe it to be true? And if so, why do you not approach God with confident boldness? Why do you not come to God with boldness, recognizing the confidence of access that you have in him? Listen, there's certain people that would hear us talk in a way like this about boldness before God and confident access before God. And this impunity, this, this picture of children rushing into their father's arms. I've painted the picture to you before about children that come busting into my office during the most serious of meetings. Because all they know is the dude on the other end of that door, he cares for me. He's got nothing but good for me. And we, we talk like that with regards to the throne room of God. It can make people very uncomfortable. And certainly there's a ditch on that side. There's a ditch in which we come and we think we get to dictate the terms to God. There's a ditch where we think that we can come because of our own merit or something else, presuming upon God's grace. There, there's also this ditch over here of something that's cavalier or casual. Where we think we can just come strolling into the presence of God and, and I'll continue to hold on to our sin and our filth or we can, we can speak to God as if we were equals. Listen, there's a fear and there's a reverence. There's an awe and there is a wonder. There's a weight. God doesn't cease to be holy. His glory doesn't all of a sudden lift because we become his children. That remains. And yet the reality is he welcomes us into his presence. Have you ever seen a child that had real reverence and yet affection for his father? It's, it's pretty rare these days. But a child who knows that his father loves him and knows he has free and unfettered access into his father's presence. Knowing that his father wants nothing but good for him. But at the same time, there is a sense of reverence and respect. 
he would never speak flippantly to his father. He comports himself in a way that he desires to bring honor to his father. That's the picture. And if we believe it to be true and we believe it to be ours in Christ Jesus, then why are we bashful and reluctant pacing at the door like Queen Esther? Why do we hem and we haul before him and act like this, this, this access isn't ours? Because there's a difference between having the access and feeling like it, isn't there? I can know intellectually in this moment that it's true. But then when I get on my knees before God, all that sometimes seems to vanish. Because of my own sin often, right? Because I know Christ Jesus came to die for my sin, to set me free from my sin. Now as I continue to wallow in my sin, I shouldn't expect to feel real confident and comfortable in his presence. But it doesn't change your access. You must hear me. Your sin doesn't take away the access. It's when we're most filthy, when we're most stained with sin, when we least feel like we have access to God, that we must come. That you most desperately need to be in his presence. That you most desperately need to trust in these promises that you can have this boldness. The word boldness, as we get to the end of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Paul's asking the saints, would you pray for me that I would speak with boldness? Boldness isn't cockiness. Boldness isn't a, isn't a strut. Boldness is speaking freely. Do you go to God and do you speak freely? Do, do you have relationships on earth like this? Carrie, I think about you. Sometimes you and I will be talking and I'll say something stupid and I'll try to fix it. And you often you'll look at me and go, or it's a, hey man, we're good. Don't feel like we have the kind of relationship where you've got to clean it up. This is, you're not God, but this is God. Hey, bud, I know that you are but dust. You speak boldly to me. You speak openly to me. You speak freely to me. And you come with confidence. What is confidence? It's assurance of outcome, right? A team is confident before the game. Why? I am sure that we will win. I'm sure of the outcome. I have certainty. What is our confidence? That he loves us. That he delights in our coming. That he cares for us. That in every time we approach him, he's going to give us one of two things. I said this Wednesday night, I say it again. He will give us one of two things. He will either give you the thing that you asked for, or he'll give you the thing you would have asked for if you knew what he knew. He will give you the thing that is best for you at all times. I have certainty of outcome. I can't lose. So I come boldly and I come with confidence into his presence. pray this for you. Pray this for us. I prayed in worship. I prayed in study of his word. I prayed in prayer. I said to you on Wednesday night that worship is a it's a litmus test. It's a revealer of the heart. I submit to you that prayer may more so be the case. It's just you and God. What a man is on his knees before God that he is and nothing more. Father God we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the assurance that in Christ Jesus, we have become acceptable to you. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, you look at us and you don't see our sin. You don't see our stain. You don't even see men who have been brought back to neutral. That in Christ Jesus, what you see is per perfection and holiness and infinite righteousness. 
that you delight in receiving us and therefore that we can come and speak freely and boldly. And that we can have confidence that you will only give us that which is best. So Father, I pray that you help us not just to know that this thing is true, but to live like it and to worship like it and to pray like it. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.